very strange and far away to, to be up there. Okay, so we're going to be reading and studying Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. So I'm going to read through the passage, and then we're just going to teach right through it. Um, Ray told me that the video they're watching is an hour and 15 minutes, so to quote him, you can preach for as long as you want. So... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I try and reward people who come on the long weekend. There are extra crowns in heaven for those who give up their long weekend camping to come and worship. So, Mark 3, uh, 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. And then Jesus' mothers and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brother, brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does, does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So we have been in the Gospel of Mark for 15 sermons. I number them, so I know this is number 16. We're not even a quarter of the way through. We'll get there, 2023. That's the end of the series. It'll, it'll be good. You'll all be experts in Mark. Mark is the action movie gospel. Each gospel has a different take. Mark's take on Jesus is he's a man of action. It's fast-paced. It's a good gospel to read if you have attention deficit disorder because you're just being uh, powered through stories. There's not a lot of extended teaching in Mark. It's just Jesus doing one thing and one event happening and and one encounter after another and Jesus moving immediately from one scene to to the next. And we've been seeing in Mark how Jesus has been announcing the good news of the coming of the kingdom and been teaching people how somehow, mysteriously, and as he teaches more, and as he does more miracles, it's becoming obvious that the kingdom is breaking in, in a special way, in and through him. And he's been positioning himself as if he's the king of this kingdom. He's doing things that only God can do. He's forgiving sins. He's he's touching people and and pronouncing forgiveness and, and pronouncing atonement outside of the normal structures. And he's becoming very, very popular with the average citizen because... He's healing people who have just life-shackling illnesses and diseases and bringing them immediate freedom, giving them a whole new lease on life. But the religious leaders are very uncomfortable with Jesus because while he's doing great things and attracting great crowds, he's, he's speaking about himself in a way that doesn't seem proper for a pious Jewish rabbi. 
he doesn't seem to be pointing towards God as much as he seems to be pointing towards himself as God. And and early on in Mark, it's kind of veiled a little bit. They're kind of wondering what's going on. But as we see in this passage, they've now gotten to the place where they're they're starting to wonder whether or not there's a dark power at work in Jesus' life. And there's a grand deception happening through what he's doing. So verse 20, he enters a house. He's just there to, to eat with his disciples, but a whole crowd has been following him. They gather. The disciples aren't able to eat. Uh, it's just jam-packed, right? Popularity is getting out of control. As Donald Trump would say, Jesus is huge, huge. I mean, his popularity is just soaring. No one knows how to deal with it. The family hears about it, and they go to take charge of him. And the word there actually literally means to arrest him. They go to grab hold of him because they're kind of wondering he's i think he's out of his mind like the way he's acting and the things that he's teaching somehow he's gone a bridge too far and his own family his own mothers and half brothers are saying yeah this is kind of beginning to be an embarrassment on our family name and we just need to go and kind of collect jesus and kind of just say okay let's figure out what's going on and let's let the kind of this chaotic popularity die down So they go to arrest Jesus, not in the legal sense, but as a family. And there's also teachers of the law who've come down from Jerusalem. They hear about this popular rabbi and teacher. They've been studying him. They've been observing and trying to figure out whether he's legit or not. And again, they've reached the tipping point, and they've kind of decided it's actually... His power comes from the fact that he's possessed by Satan, by Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. That's a, another name for Satan in, in the scriptures. And so their thesis is that it's by the powers of darkness, it's by the power of Satan that he's doing these miracles, and specifically that he's driving out demons. Now, notice that they don't reject Jesus' miracles. None of the religious leaders ever say, hey, it's a party trick, or it's, it's an illusion, or um, he's just kind of manipulating people's consciousness and, and, and kind of doing baits and switches, and he's, and he's kind of a trickster. They understand, because they're seeing it, that the miracles are real. They're hearing his words, and they can't get to the place of agreeing with him, so then they're only left with one choice, which is if... There is a great power at work, but it can't be God's power because God wouldn't send a representative who spoke of himself like the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, then maybe this is all some kind of demonic uprising. And Jesus kind of exposes the stupidity of that argument. In verse 23, he says, how could Satan drive out Satan? And his point is, what would be the point of that? What, what would be the purpose Let's, let's give your argument the benefit of the doubt. Let's say this is Satan at work. Why would Satan be driving out his minions? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house can't stand. And so if Satan is opposing Satan, and he's dividing his own little kingdom, he's promoting infighting, he can't stand. And the end has come. His kingdom is imploding. Why would Satan encourage a civil war amongst his own followers? A kingdom's only powerful if it's united. A house is only powerful if it's united. When kingdoms become divided and when homes become divided, that's a sign that they're moving toward, it's kind of the beginning of the end. That, that doesn't, you don't fast forward that script and find the kingdom is growing, the household is strengthened. You fast forward the script and both lie in ruins. 
So Jesus is just trying to get them to see, I know you're really trying to avoid acknowledging me as not simply just a Messiah as a sent one from God, but God in human form. But the lengths you're going to to try and justify this, they don't even make sense. They're They're literally irrational. They don't make sense anymore. And then Jesus says this. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob himself. Sorry, then he can rob his house. And so Jesus is saying, there's actually only one possible deduction you can make if you've been paying attention to me and my ministry. If I expel demons, it's only because I'm in possession of a power greater than the demon's power. Now, in Jewish theology, Satan has quite a bit of power, and there's only one person who has greater power than Satan, and that's God. So, the only greater power to to exercise demons was the power of God. And if Jesus is invoking that power, if he's manifesting that power, then that means that he has a power which has overcome the enemy. And this means that Satan's reign, his reign of darkness and sin and death, his kingdom is coming to an end because a stronger one has come who has bound him. And now, in exorcisms, in healing the sick, in bringing restoration to the, to the blind and the broken and the crippled, Jesus is saying, a stronger one has come and I am plundering Satan's kingdom. I'm, I'm taking back from Satan, what he took from me. Jesus' claim is that he is a stronger one than the strong man of Satan. And he's plundering Satan's possessions. And that is an aggressive word. The word rob there is the Greek word from which we get plunder. It's an aggressive word. It is a word of that we would associate with, with Vikings, with raiders, people who attack and move into places and using violent means take what is not theirs and make off with it. But instead of plundering the innocent and stealing that which isn't his own, Jesus says, I'm plundering Satan's kingdom and I'm taking back that which is God's. I'm taking back that which has the image of God in it. It doesn't belong to Satan. These are people made in the image of God. And I'm plundering his kingdom. I am going on the offensive. I am letting it be known in word and deed that Satan's kingdom's reign is over and the kingdom of God is being established in and through me and Satan no longer has any power or jurisdiction here. That aggressive sentiment reminded me of a quote from C.T. Studd who said, some people want to live within the sound of church bells or chapel bells, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That is the, that's, the, that's the emotional punch that Jesus is getting at here. I haven't come to be nice. I haven't come to play nice with the kingdoms of this world. I've come to establish the kingdom of God. Join me, it's going to be amazing. But if Satan and those who follow him get in the way, you need to understand something. This is, this is oil and water. We're not a complement to each other. I've come to overthrow 
the kingdom of darkness. We've been talking about this all through Mark. The gospel is an insurrection. It is an overthrow of the status quo, which is bad news if you benefit from the status quo, but it's great news if you are part of the vast majority of people who are under the dominion of sin and death and Satan. There's also a reference here, although it's, a commentator say it's very veiled, but it's there to Isaiah 49. 600 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. And one of the, the, the questions that God poses through the prophet to his people is this. Can plunder be taken from warriors? Can captives be rescued from the fierce? And the answer, obviously, is no. You can't plunder people who are actually stronger than you. They'll just, over, they'll just kill you. And you can't rescue captives from people who are strong, from the fierce. But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Jesus is a king who doesn't just sit in his own kingdom and wait for people to say yes He's a conquering king who conquers through love and healing and hope and restoration, but he goes on the offensive to bring people into his kingdom. It's like um, if plundering isn't a metaphor that works with you, maybe you think of like a special, special ops military force who are trained to go into some of the most dangerous places and rescue people from captivity, do these jobs which no one else can do. And that's a picture of the gospel. The gospel is a rescue. One of the ways the Bible depicts our situation uh, outside of Christ is that we are under the control of Satan, bound by sin and death. And Jesus alone has the power to immobilize that strong man. He's the only one who can burst through the door and bring liberty and hold out the hand and say, I am here to rescue you, come with me. And all we have to do is say yes, but that we are hopeless without that rescue. Because of Jesus, the king who plunders the kingdom of darkness... We who are lost and we who are lost are not hopeless. And then he says these words. I tell you the truth, and he's speaking specifically to the religious leaders who have come down from Jerusalem. That's an important part of understanding what's going on here. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. All of them. You think of whatever sin you can think of, no matter how egregious, all of those sins will be covered over. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin, or sometimes translated um, unforgivable sin. And he said this because they, the religious leaders, were saying, well, he has an evil spirit. First of all, whenever you see, I tell you the truth in Scripture, it's an awkward way of trying to figure out how to properly translate the Greek word amen, which is amen, from which we get amen. So Jesus is teaching them this stuff, and then he stops, and he looks at the religious leaders, and he says, amen. And he's about to say something. And I've talked about this before, but if you haven't heard it, this is really important to hear. It's really important to hear again, maybe for the first time. What would happen in a pious, religious, Jewish context? Someone gets up to teach the scriptures, you teach, and then at the end of the teaching, elders from the community stand up and they say amen they affirm what you just said was true so that by good god-fearing human authority communities could vet the teaching of someone and 
elders who were godly, uh, godly men could put their stamp of approval. There is nowhere in recorded Jewish history where anybody amens themselves. And there is nowhere in recorded Jewish history where someone amends themselves before they say something. That is Jesus' way of saying, I don't need to wait for any human authority to validate what I'm about to say. I'm going to do it myself. It is entirely trustworthy and true. Some translations say, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly. In some of the Gospels, it's doubled. It's amin, amin. It's the doubling. It's intensification. What I'm about to tell you, you can bank on it. And he says, all manner of blasphemy and sins are going to be forgiven, but not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's he getting at there? There are tons of stuff on here, but I want to fast track this because although a lot of people gravitate to this part of the passage, it's actually, I think, not the most significant part of the passage. So I'm just going to teach on it very, very quickly. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, understood in this context, is the consistent, stubborn, hard-hearted refusal to embrace the Spirit's work that's happening in and through Jesus. Jesus doesn't give this warning to his family who kind of think he's out of his mind. They're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's the religious leaders who are saying, I see this, I hear his teachings, I see the miracles, I see the people moving into new life. I, I... you know, and I get to the place in my heart where my heart is so hard, it's so twisted, that I'm like, I can't even see that as anything good. There's stories in the gospel where people get their hand healed in a synagogue, and the first reaction of religious leaders is, he's breaking the Sabbath. Yeah, some guy just had a crushed hand and is healed. People who couldn't see, there's, there's not even like, that's amazing, I'm so happy for you. But Jesus, can we talk about why you did that? Or I don't understand. It's an immediate impulse to judgment and a resistance, so much so that you get to a place where you can't even see what, um, what by common grace is just clearly a beautiful gift from God. You see it as the trickery of the devil. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when we consistently refuse to come to Jesus and embrace who he is. And the reason why it can't be forgiven is just a logical reason. It's not because God doesn't uh, isn't willing isn't willing to forgive it but we put ourselves in a position where we can't be forgiven jesus says come to me and you can have forgiveness i don't need you i don't want you i don't think you're the son of god i'm rejecting you why is that an eternal sin because you're rejecting the only means by which you can have salvation so jesus says all manner of sin can be forgiven you think of the most heinous thing you could ever do repeatedly this Christian history is filled with people, the Apostle Paul being one, people who hunted down and killed Christians. Jesus says, my blood can atone for that. What what it can't overcome is a heart that just consistently says no to me. A life that is lived as if I'm constantly throwing my finger, my middle finger up at the Almighty and saying I'm going to do my own thing. That's the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is just refusing to look into the life of ministry of Jesus and allow the Spirit to convict us. Verse 31, Then Jesus' mothers and brothers arrived. They're standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. So this is the tie back to verse 21. They ask someone to go in. Jesus has become an embarrassment to his family. 
they don't really get what he's doing, it's quite an honorable thing to have a popular rabbi in your family. It's quite another to have a controversial rabbi. And certainly when the religious authorities are casting doubt on it, you know, you kind of get that, oh, what's going on here? This went from being, yeah, this is my brother to like, uh, yeah, he's part of our family. Jesus has kind of become sort of a black sheep in terms of what he's been doing. He's risking the family's reputation. That meant a lot more in that day than it does today. But when you brought shame upon your family, it was a, it was a huge deal. We, we just don't have really a modern power, parallel to it in our context. But a family's reputation and their status within a community was massive. And so Jesus' own family has been brought to the place where they're like, let's go and kind of pull them back home and kind of see if we can, kind of do an intervention, essentially. Let's kind of see if we can bring down the heat on this situation and kind of restore our reputation amongst um, our fellow Jews and fellow citizens. It's kind of their attempt to, to hush Jesus up. And the crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus stops. And he asks a question. Who are my mother and brothers? Uh, they're, they're the ones outside. They, they came, those ones right there. They came for you. And Jesus looks at those seated in a circle around him. It's a, it's a room full of losers. It's just sinful, broken losers. But losers who have said yes, yes to Jesus. Not people with hard hearts who have said, I don't need this, or this is kind of an interesting intellectual experiment. They're following Jesus. They want more. They want to hear more. They want to experience more. They want to learn about this kingdom and what it means to be involved in it. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. See, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that is a really bold, subversive, new criteria for family that prioritizes obedience to God over blood relation. Again, to us, it doesn't mean very much, but to a Jewish people who took a lot of their spiritual identity and spiritual security from the fact that, well, God made a covenant with Abraham. We're, I'm part of the people of God because I'm part of Abraham's seed. I, I'm, part of, I'm part of the Jewish people. So I kind of have an automatic in. And that's certainly how the religious leaders thought. We're children of Abraham. We're, we're born kind of, weren't we just born citizens of the kingdom of God? Isn't that how this whole thing works? And Jesus says, no. To this kingdom, you must be born again. You don't get to be born into it. You're born again into it. And it's not because of how good you are, but it's, because, it's out of acknowledgement that this, is, this kingdom is only open to those who recognize that they can't merit it. They can't access it through their own achievement. Now, I was thinking about that, and you look at this, and it kind of sounds like the opposite, because doesn't Jesus imply that this new family is based on spiritual meritocracy? Those who do God's will. Those who are righteous people, those who do God's will. Only people who faithfully live out God's commands get to have access to God's family? Is that what Jesus is saying? It sounds like that. And if that's the case, isn't that exactly the opposite message of the gospel? Isn't the gospel that we have access to God and are adopted into God's family through grace, by faith, not because 
we do the will of God and God says, oh, you gold star, like you're in, you, you, you succeeded in achieving uh, status within the family of God. Well, I think when Jesus talks about doing the will of God, we have to let Jesus define what doing the will of God is. And he makes it very clear in John six twenty nine when people ask him, what's the work of God? What's the will of God that we need to do in order to have eternal life? And Jesus says, there are certainly the, the implications. There are lots of commands. There's lots of things that we do to honor God, but there's a primary first level of what it means to do the will of God. And Jesus says in John six twenty nine, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. That's the, that's the baseline. That's the ultimate doing of the work of God, is to believe in the one that he sent. And then a few verses later in 640, in John, Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus isn't saying, oh, if you just do, like keep all these commands, I'll consider you my brother and sisters. He's saying, I am the king. This is a new kingdom. You need to be born again into it. You need to surrender by new birth to me as the king. And you have to be a person who's not hard-hearted, who's soft-hearted and saying, now, Jesus, I want you to teach me how to live. Because that's what the people in front of Jesus were doing. The religious leaders were people who knew all about God's will. They had all the right answers. But these were people who were moving into it. They were following through. They weren't... Part of what got Jesus in trouble was, from the religious point of view, the people that hung around Jesus were not spiritually meritorious. They were sinners. Like, they were spiritual losers. Why, why is Jesus letting... Look at his 12 disciples. These aren't even close to the best and the brightest. This is a motley crew of people who are the poster children for not good enough. But in response to that, they had said, I want to follow you, Jesus. They had experienced the new life of the kingdom, and now they had set their hearts to learning to obey God as part of his new family. It wasn't just a mechanical thing for them. It wasn't just dry religion. It was life in the kingdom of God. And that means there's tremendous hope in this passage for everybody in this room. As one writer said, if the church is more significant, and if it's more enduring than a family a blood bond, then our attitudes and programs should show that. And this is a really loving word for those of us whose families rejected us or sidelined us as black sheep when we became Christians. Because your faith, sorry, your family, because of your faith in Jesus, is much bigger than just the family that you thought you had access to when you were young. We need to read the New Testament, all of it, as a vision for what the renewed family of God under the leadership of Jesus is supposed to look like. God is calling us into a family. God's rescue operation isn't just to save Wendy and Rob and Andrea and me and then we all go out and do different things. It's also about saving us into a family. We learn to be spiritual brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, grandparents, to each other, and we go out and impact the world as a family. We learn to allow God to use that new family to heal over wounds that our original families left on us, uh, maybe still inflict on us because of our faith. Romans 12, 9 to 11 is a great example. 
where you can read this and kind of see it as, hey, here's some challenging things of, through which I can grow in my own individual ability to express my faith. But you have to see this as this is Paul writing to the Roman church and saying, you're a family now. You've been saved by the grace of God, and there are rules and expectations for this family. You need to learn to love each other as Jesus did. We had to learn from Jesus. Now we're teaching you. Paul says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that a passage that we're just supposed to read as individuals and say, I'm going to try and do those things in and of myself? No, it's a passage that is given to a community. You, God has created this little constellation of the kingdom of God in Rome. And I want you to grow into his vision for what a redeemed and renewed family looks like. And God has created a little constellation of the kingdom here in Nelson and through his word and by his spirit, God is forming us to become a family. We need to grow and to push ourselves to continue to grow in that Jesus-shaped gospel vision. Because a lot of people in this room never had a good family to speak of. And a lot of people in this room certainly never had a family that reflected God's love and grace. And we need to be renewed spiritual brothers and sisters to each other. There are little kids here who need renewed spiritual grandparents. We need to grow to be people who see ourselves as part of a family that God is using to encourage and equip us to live the lives that we're called to. We can't do it alone. You can't be a Christian on your own. You need family. And that's one of the reasons for me why church matters so much. And I, I don't mean the universal you know, theological large vision church. I mean like the local embodied church. Rooms like this, 50, 100, 200 people. Sunday mornings, Bible studies, small groups, retreats. These are family bonding times that are centered on Jesus. They're contexts through which we're coached a little bit more by God's word and spirit to learn to love each other well. How are we supposed to cultivate spiritual vibrancy and to see God powerfully at work in our lives if we don't prioritize meeting together as a family? My family is related by blood, and if we never sat down and had dinners together, if we never went on hikes together, if we never played together, if, all, if I just kept saying, yeah, we're family, though. Like, it says so right on the certificate. Like, you can trace the, I can show you the family. That's not what family is. Family are groups of people that are coming together consistently. 
who learn to love each other and encourage one another. That's why Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's an intimacy and a power that comes from family leaning into God's mission together, consistently meeting together to be shaped by God's word and spirit, and then scattering to spread that good news into these particular spheres of your lives. This is a question that I was thinking about moving towards today. When people become Christians over the next 10 years in Nelson because of our ministry that we're doing, seen and unseen, formal and informal, when, when people here who are not Christians become Christians, will there be a redeemed family here waiting for them? Will there be a group of people who will be committed to pray and love, to bear burdens, to begin to coach them in little things like, I've never owned a Bible. What are all the numbers on the pages for? I don't know. What am I supposed to be reading? How do I do this? How do I process this pain? Are, are we going to be a family that can say, you're loved, you belong, we're glad you're here, and let us help you? Hebrews 10 is a great um, starting point that to cultivate that culture here we got to fight spiritual complacency we encourage one another we keep meeting together and, and we push each other forward in the faith okay to close I want to talk about the cost of that renewed family you know on that day in question Mark chapter 3 Jesus' family come to take charge of him they come to arrest him and they don't they're unable to arrest him. <laughs> he doesn't allow them to. And Jesus, through his teaching authority, establishes himself as the stronger one, as the mighty one. There is no authority in this world that is above him. There's no power that threatens what he's going to do. But it's not too much longer in Mark before we're going to see another group of people that will take charge of Jesus. They will arrest him. And it's in a garden. He's going to be arrested, he's going to be put on trial, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be mocked, and then he's going to be crucified. And the stronger one, the mighty one, is going to be made very, very weak. He's going to be brought low. He's going to be made pitiful, and he's going to be made powerless. And so much so that people will mock him and say, he can't even save himself. What a loser. He can't even save himself. Why does Jesus subject himself to that? It's for you. It's so that there could be a way that you could become part of his family. You are here at great cost to Jesus. You are beloved. And that got me to thinking the irony of this whole passage is that Jesus' family was kind of right. Jesus was actually a little bit out of his mind. What kind of person would subject, would subject, subject themselves to that for just the chance that their beloved would say yes? Might still reject them. See, part of the gospel is that Jesus was out of his mind in his love for you. He inappropriately, he, he showered us with an inappropriate grace 
His plan of rescue is irrational to the core, but it displays a love and a truth that just, when it grips your heart, you, you just can't be the same. You can't live the same. You can't love the same. You can't look at other people the same, whether those in your renewed family or those outside of it. When you think about what Jesus went through in order to secure us a seat at the family table, the words of the song ring true. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Jesus would have had to have been out of his mind to do this. I wouldn't do it, but Jesus did. That is the gospel. Nothing, not even your own sinful rebellion could stop him from going into the heart of darkness for you, for taking the full weight of sin's power and shame upon himself and in the process rescuing, rescuing you when all you could simply do is reach out to him. So today, let that good news take charge of you. Let it arrest you in your heart, wherever you are. And then let's go into the places of darkness in this city and in this world and let's plunder the kingdom of darkness with Jesus' love and hope and truth. Let's pray. God, you are glorious. Your gospel is inexhaustively beautiful and deep and powerful. We want to be shaped by it, God. Thank you for making us part of your family. And now as people who call you our Lord and Savior, may we not become hard-hearted and simply be people who go through the motions, but may we be people who long to do your will. May we hunger and thirst for your righteousness, and may we be willing every day to open our hearts and our lives to you and say, God, whatever your will is, I want to do it today. I want to love you. Teach us to love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, God. Thank you for your grace.